Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 123 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. So as the expression goes, sometimes you got to fight fire with fire. We are interviewing David Poses today, and he is going to talk about his memoir, The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. And he is going to talk about his heroin addiction and how he was able to use buprenorphine to help him overcome that addiction and enable him to end his double life and really thrive and be sober for the last 10 years. So David shares his story and struggle to find treatment and get help when many of the treatment modalities at the time didn't really fit for him and how in a last ditch effort, he was able to find a doctor that would prescribe buprenorphine to him in order for him to really save his life from heroin. And so David really weighs in on addiction treatment, some of the real issues in addiction treatment and how we have to really change our thinking about addiction and addiction treatment. It's a great conversation and David really just owns his story and puts it all out there. And I really enjoyed just talking with them. This episode is a little bit longer than normal, but the conversation was just really rich and I wanted to keep going. So uh, I hope that's okay with everybody. All right. So once again, before we go, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And also think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. Okay, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is David Poses, and he is going to talk about his book, The Weight of Air. And he's going to talk about his own recovery story. David, why don't you just start by introducing yourself? 
Hi, uh, I'm David Buzzes. I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a writer. I do speaking gigs, uh, activism whenever possible, just trying to uh, spread truth and cut through the noise. Awesome. Great. So let's just jump in. Let's start talking about your story of addiction and how it manifested. One of the things I, I also want to talk about, because I know your story uh, talks about depression and mental health, as well as addiction. So I want to I want to get there too. But I just want to kind of hear it from the beginning. Okay, sure. I guess I was, um, I mean, long before depression entered my vocabulary, I was depressed. I was a sad kid. My mom used to ask, you know, why are you so sad <laughs> all the time? You know, I, I knew that I didn't want to be sad, but I didn't know uh, how to not be sad. So in the early uh, childhood drug prevention programs, we had a, you know, um, I grew up in the 80s. So uh, it was a D.A.R.E. program. This cop came to my school in fifth grade. He told us uh, why you shouldn't drink and smoke pot and cocaine and, and basically everything. And he said heroin was the worst drug. And he said it makes you not have any feelings. It's a painkiller so powerful that, that you don't have any feelings. And I thought, like, that that sounds like exactly what I need. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, and he didn't say it in a good way, you know, obviously. Um, but, you know, that that sounded perfect. So I, I grew up in uh, in Westchester County in New York and heroin in the early 90s. You know, there wasn't an opioid crisis. So heroin was just this hardcore drug that nobody went near. And uh, all my friends, like starting in, I guess, like eighth, ninth grade, everybody was uh, drinking and, and smoking pot. And I tried alcohol and, and weed and I, I couldn't stand them. Um, I hated the feeling. I got drunk once and it was really just horrifying. And, uh, you know, but, but heroin was impossible to find. So I guess to make a long story short, I tracked it down finally just before 10th grade started. And it was exactly what I w- had hoped it would be. And at that point, I'd been in therapy uh, since I was about four or five years old, and like three different psychiatrists uh, decided that I, I was depressed. Um, they, they tried, you know, every conceivable antidepressant on the market at the time. Nothing helped, and heroin was the only thing that was effective. Um, and I had reached. Sorry, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, can, can you talk a little bit about that? depression and what's that like i have a similar story because because for me i went into rehab when i was 17 and a big chunk of it was really depression and i think some people you know it's hard if you haven't struggled with depression it's hard to understand that pain if that makes sense yeah no absolutely yeah so i mean i guess you know i i thought of it as you know i i was hurting and it was really so frustrating because you know like you sprain your ankle and uh it's all kind of sympathy and 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 we know that you know you're not going to be able to will that pain away or, or snap out of it you know you go to the hospital and you get the crutches and whatever with emotional pain you know people tell you you know calm down snap out of it don't you want to be happy um, that that doesn't matter. I mean, that kind of stuff just made me feel so much worse. And oh, it, um, you, you, it puts more blame on you. Like you shouldn't have this yeah. pain. Like just get mm-hmm. over it. It, it. Exactly. And um, you know, it was really like I just I, I I couldn't find a place that felt good because the guilt of the depression was so intense. And so um, you know, I mean, you know, pain is um, it, the only subjective vital sign, and I think that kind of double standard of physical and, and psychological pain is kind of at the root of, of what's going on here. You know, I, I don't know if I was going to necessarily, you know, jump off a roof, um, you know, five minutes, uh, you know, 
um, right, right. later. But I, I had been thinking about suicide since I was a very young kid. And it got much more intense and much more like just I had no hope. You know, but in the back of my mind, I knew like there's this stuff, it's called heroin, it's going to help me. And right. so I kind of like had this deal with myself that like, you know, let's find this stuff. And if it works, then, um, you know, then, then great. Right. Um, so. And it works. It does. And I think the thing about it is like, you know, we know as, you know, a society, we know that opioids kill pain. You know, that's what they're for. Doctor prescribes opioids. We know that you're hurting. Um, you know, we totally get it. But illicit use, like everything gets kind of flipped on its, on its ear. Like we, um, I, I went to rehab, I spent my 19th birthday in rehab and they told me heroin was the cause of all of my pain. Painkillers cause pain. Depression is an excuse, you know, and it was so backwards to me because, you know, chronic pain is, uh, is like any, if it lasts, you know, more than three months, I think, or maybe it's three, whatever it is, it's like, any right. doctor would have considered my pain, you know, chronic if it was physical. So just hearing all of that stuff was really, you know, there was no way around it because I couldn't relate to what they were saying. And these guys are the experts. And I had lied about my, you know, I wasn't going around telling anybody that I was on heroin. I, I hid it for, you know, for three years. And so when my mom came to visit, you know, I remember having this conversation with her and my counselor, they had decided that I was in such bad denial that I was uh, liable to drink hand sanitizer if um, there was any lying around. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, I had I was completely honest with them about my use of other drugs and that, you know, I'm fiercely loyal to to heroin. And, you know, I mean, opioids at the time, like, you know, I, I if I had an opportunity to take something else, I would have. But it wasn't like you know, it is now. It sounds like a real misunderstanding of yeah. mental health. And you're getting this advice that, you know, you just have to get out of this depression. You're you're in denial. No. And yet you are in immense amount of pain. And yeah. depression is, is, you know, can be like physical pain. Your body is in pain. Is. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're like, this is just an excuse. This is just denial. I mean, that sounds really uh, hopeless to be said that, was, to be told it that. Bad. It was bad. And the thing about it is, um, you know, it it's actually, it, it was worse than than you described because it wasn't just the depression is an excuse. It, it was the heroin is causing the depression. Right. You know, and so in, in my mind, like I'm sitting there listening to this and I'm thinking like, you know, I mean, I learned in, in fifth grade that, you know, pot does this and alcohol does that. Like we know that every kind of substance is different, but you know, when, when drugs are involved and somebody uh, is, is addicted to drugs, we lump everything together. It's all recreational drugs. There's no, you know, your drug of choice is merely a detail because you're going to chug the hand sanitizer if you get desperate enough and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and, and I explained to my counselor that like, I didn't even think about drinking beer when, <laughs> you know, like I, I got right. desperate. I mean, so, I mean, come on. Um, so my mom came to visit or my, my parents were divorced when I was four. I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, an important part of the story. Right. Um, but, uh, so, so my, my father came out first and, and then my mom was there and I had this conversation with my mother and she was just like, I understand what you're saying. You're making a lot of sense, but what if you're wrong? And, right. you know, right. So, so the 19 year old version of me back then was just like so incensed um, that she could say that. And now, you know, I, I have two kids. 
you know, no way I'm rolling those dice. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, you could see how as a parent, how scary that would be. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, like I knew that my counselor was, uh, had he graduated from high school, you know, but but he's an expert. And I mean, maybe I, I should have mentioned sooner, but like, well, I, I, I think, you know, I was also going to say what kind of came to mind as you were talking is I think when we don't understand something or we don't understand it fully, there can be a lot of easy, very black and white thinking. Yes. And yeah. we can get lost in that black and white thinking. Right. And, and, you know, it might make, quote, logical sense somehow, but not really be accurate. Right, exactly. And I think that was kind of the thing is that um, everything that they said made perfect sense in the context that they were saying it. You know, like, yes. if addiction was my problem, then of course sobriety is the solution. Like, sobriety is stop taking drugs. So like if shoveling drugs into my mouth was the problem and I stopped doing that, then, you know, of course that's what you do. So, you know, and, and, and all of the like isms and stuff, like I would kind of, you know, I was so cynical. I mean, I, I've always been very cynical and very pragmatic. And so I was, you know, poking holes in everything and they were just, you know, they would say like, well, AA works. And, and how do you, like, there's no angle to drill into that. You know, it, it works. Well, I say right. it doesn't and you say it does. All right. So, you know, what do we do? So, and the idea that like God was going to solve my like it it, it didn't fit for you it was this this like this doesn't make it, sense to me it, it totally didn't and it and it was really um it was infuriating to me because the idea that you know like in in the 1400s when you had bubonic plague you know you you prayed and if you're a good person then you know god cured you and all like that so like if, if you take that kind of model like i was dropping any other medical condition on top of it and it just doesn't work um, you know, I mean, like my mom had cancer uh, twice by the time I got to rehab and right. you know, there was no, you know, pray and you'll be fine. So they scared the shit out of me. It didn't have the, it doesn't have the evidence. It's not an evidence-based treatment, I guess. No, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, and that's the thing. Like I'm, I'm very careful to, um, I, I never want to discourage anybody from doing anything that works, but at the same time, you know, it's not actually treatment. It's a support group. And that's okay. If that works for you, like, that's totally great. I mean, my mom, you know, she had cancer and chemotherapy with, with the cancer. And then she joined um, a Gilda's Club, which is, you know, this support group. And it was great. If she would have only done Gilda's Club, I'm, I'm sure that she would be dead right now. Right. You know, and, right. And, and that's the thing. So, you know, all of the, like, the moral and the shaming and the, and the business, like, that was hard because I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't going around hurting people. I wasn't like, you know, murdering and, and robbing people and, you know, whatever, like, I just wanted to feel okay. Um, right. Yeah. So and I, you know, when I look at 12 step groups, you know, I'm a big supporter of 12 step groups, because they offer support and community. Yes. But I also understand that it, you know, addiction, disease, our physical bodies, our brain, our, our neurobiology is complex. And we don't understand everything. But having a support community, I think can be really crucial it is for crucial. healing Absolutely. but at the same time it has its its limitations it's there's a st statement that i kind of try to live by most of the time is you know beware the tyranny of the one right way right right <laughs> there's a lot of options out there and there's a lot of ways yeah. to get sober and there's a lot of ways to get recovery or even if sob sobriety as they say it is yeah. is not 
your purpose. You have to find what works for you. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and I think the thing with the support groups is that would have been so great for me at any point along the way, but I felt so alienated by AA that like, uh, you know, that, that the camaraderie and the accountability like that, that's awesome. And if that works for you, you know, that's totally great. And I think the right. thing about the treatment piece is, you know, if we know that every type of substance is different and we know that, you know, like a hit of heroin, uh, the, the biological mechanics are the same as a, a hand of blackjack or sleeping with hookers or a shot of tequila or whatever it is. It's like that, you know, high mm-hmm. is, is the same, you know, uh, it's, it's the flood of, of dopamine and serotonin. Opioids are the only type of substance that have their own, you know, natural target in your brain, your opiate receptors. So they regulate emotion and, and blah, blah, blah. So the, there's been all the studies on the neuroplasticity of, you know, what happens in an opioid addict's brain. And for every, for every kind of vice or addiction, like your neurotransmitters rewire and they, and they seek out the next hit, whatever it is, um, you know. And so the idea that like sobriety gets easier with time, there's a lot of truth to that. Because if you stop drinking, if you stop sleeping with hookers, if you stop whatever it is that you're doing, you know, your brain does heal in time, and things go back to normal. There have been a lot of studies about about um, opioids that show that that doesn't uh, necessarily go back. For some people, it does. For some people, it doesn't. And the idea you know, you, you hear so much like bravado in these conversations about like, oh, nobody was more fucked up than me. You know, I could drink 7,000 beers and, you know, I was shooting 200 bags of dope and whatever. It's not a matter of like, you drank more beer than me. It's, it's just your brain chemistry. So right. by that point in your life, it's like, I think there's two things going on. One is the pain that you're experiencing. Like if, if it seems like if you move it to a, a physical analogy, it's so much easier for people to understand. Like, your foot got chopped off, you're taking morphine that a doctor prescribed. And they go, oh, wait a minute, this is a massive problem. Stop taking the morphine. Your foot's not going to feel better. Like, obviously, <laughs> right? Right, right. So part two of that is the neuroplasticity in, in your brain. And so now you're feeling just as bad because you have no morphine in your foot, you know, problem. But on top of that, like all of the, you know, not just the emotional well-being, the the kind of misfiring between your neurotransmitters, but you have a lower pain threshold, like all of these issues pop up. There's so many um, latent vulnerabilities that that we know about now. And so, you know, I couldn't get on methadone because I was hiding this, you know, I mean, right. basically like- You couldn't talk about it. You couldn't be no, open about no. it and have this kind of discussion. No. Nobody, um, nobody knew. So I, I, I got, I got kicked out of rehab for making out with this girl. They sent me to a halfway house and, uh, there was a guy there who I had met in rehab. Um, I was there for about a week and he was the only other heroin addict that I, that I knew, um, from rehab. I mean, it was, you know, there weren't a lot of heroin addicts back then. Right. Um, I want, I want before we keep going, I, I want to go back a little bit and, and ask one question because you were in this depression, right? And you um found heroin and and it, and it it helped right it fit it it took that depression away pain, but yeah. when did it start to become problematic for you when did when did it start to say okay i i need to stop this what was that decision that you made or how was it showing up in your life that you right. got to this rehab you know it's interesting because i was so aware at the time and throughout that it wasn't heroin's fault, you know, and I, w- I would say this and they'd be like, you're in, you know, you're in denial, like that's addict mentality. But it was really, it was the laws and the stigma. 
if I had a prescription for, you know, like, so, so the idea of like, you know, you're getting beaten up and, and arrested and like all of the shit that goes with, you know, being, being a, um, you know, a, a quote unquote junkie, um, you know, was obviously not good. Um, but you know, again, if my foot got chopped off and a doctor prescribed morphine and I had refills every month, none of those things would be an issue, but that didn't happen. These were, you know, issues. And that's really what it was. Like I was so, I hated the lying. I hated the the nonstop risks. I hated not knowing what I was doing. You know, I, I was always so meticulous, right. but, um, you know, you, you, you have no idea what you're doing with, with, you know, I mean, you, you know, it's powder in a bag, like fuck knows what that is. Um, right. You don't know. That's pretty, it can be pretty dang, darn dangerous. It's, it's very, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think, and, and that's really what's going on, you know, today that that's, what's killing people is, um, you know, you, you open, you know, a bottle of vodka, you know, exactly, you know, it's 40 proof, it's whatever, you know, a shot is, you know, you can measure it like with, you know, a bag of one bag of heroin could be, you know, pulverized vitamins. The next bag is uh, a carafentanil. I mean, you know, so you're looking at this, like this is working for my depression, but I'm taking these huge amount of, of risks. Yeah. I, I'm lying about it. I'm hiding it. I, yeah, it's not, it, this is, this is not worth it. I've yeah. got to do something. Exactly. And so, um, you know, so at that point I, it was just before my 19th birthday. Um, I had tried to stop a few times, but not really. And then the book actually starts, I've got this very close friend, my best friend who, uh, he, he was the first heroin addict I met. He gave me my first hit and I told him, you know, I'm going to stop. And I, my mom went to Florida for a week. So I forced myself into this cold Turkey, you know, kick at mom's house. I made my friend Rob take my, my car and my money and, you know, like to force me into this kind of no exit situation. And it was brutal. And somewhere in the middle, um, I, I still don't remember this, but I ended up calling my father and he came to my mom's house and I guess, uh, I spilled my guts to him. Um, and he brought this friend, wow. this, uh, this friend of his who was some kind of recovering addict of, of some sort. And they took me to a detox, uh, at a, at a nearby hospital. I was there for a couple of hours and then I left. And, you know, in the meantime, my mom was on her way home from Florida. And, uh, you know, the, the thing with, with rehab and all that stuff, like addiction is so reactive, you know, like you look at, I mean, like my daughter is a freshman in high school and like we're having college conversations now. We're not talking about what rehab we're going to send her to, you know? Right. Um, right. I mean, hopefully, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but, um, you know, it's like addiction is such a like, oh my God, he's on drugs. What do we do? So, uh, you know, so they sent me to this place and it was, you know, they're trained to, um, treat addiction. They're not depression experts. It's not a mental health operation. You know, this is what they do. Mm -hmm. So when my counselor who is an expert in treating addiction is told addicts lie, this is addict mentality, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I go in and I, you know, hit every flag or whatever it is, um, you know, the misunderstanding, like you said, that that's like, I felt like it was a Twilight Zone episode, you know, because I'm going, well, like, here I am again, this is insanity. Um, and he's like, no, 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 this all, you know, this is, this is exactly, this is textbook. I mean, they kept, they said that to me all the time. You know, this, this is textbook. Um, huh. yeah. So, so how did you start getting out of, out of that world? And you started looking at, at other alternatives to get you some help, to get yeah. you some support. You know, it's funny because I knew about buprenorphine before I started using heroin. Um, there were clinical trials in New York. My friend Rob, the heroin addict, 
uh, a few of his friends had used it. I thought that it was only for withdrawal. I didn't realize it was a maintenance drug. Um, and of course, I knew about you know methadone, but um, you know, so right. So, so can, can you tell the audience if they're listening, they don't know what that is? Can you tell them what that is, and, and so they know what you're talking about? Sure. Um, so methadone is a full opioid agonist. Uh, basically, there's there's two uh, medications that are proven to uh, dramatically reduce your risk of uh, death, relapse, and overdose, um, and that's methadone and buprenorphine. All other forms of treatment or medications do not, and many others uh, actually do the exact opposite. There have been a lot of studies about rehab is actually, and any kind of uh, abstinence-based treatment, whether it's forced or voluntary, increases your risk of overdose because you come out of it, you have no tolerance, and, you know, that's, that's when people are dying. So, uh, so, so I was aware of methadone, but, you know, I was in this spot where I couldn't, uh, no, like basically it, I, I got out of rehab and it was like, I was holding my breath. It was like, you know, I know that, you know, my, my foot is still chopped off. I still don't have the drugs. I still have this lower pain threshold, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it was like, well, but I can't go back to that stuff because it's going to be a disaster. So I'm going to just, you know, as long as I can hold your breath, just yeah. white knuckle it. White knuckle it exactly, and and you know when you know I'll, I'll I'll do it when it's an emergency, and otherwise you know that's that you know so that that was basically kind of my my mo, and I called methadone clinics like every now and again when I got so desperate, but it was always the same thing. You know, you got to come in every like I, there was no way I was going to be able to hide it, and I didn't know that buprenorphine was a maintenance drug, so it was just holding my breath for forever, and I didn't go back to therapy which I didn't even really think about because, you know, I'd had such bad experiences with antidepressants. And the last therapist that I saw before I went to rehab, it was like maybe a couple of years before, I went into his office. I was trying to figure out what to do about the heroin. I hadn't seen him in about a year. I make an appointment. I go and I sit down and he goes, you look like a fucking junkie. And I was, wow. yeah, like, so I started to cry and I left because, you know, there's such a... Um, Shame. Yeah, I, I I was ashamed, and there's such a um, you know, I think like addiction has been so siloed off away from from you know medicine for so long that um, you know, even with doctors, you know, even today, like I tell a doctor that you know I have a history of of whatever, and and you know they assume that like I'm in there looking for drugs, um, right? You know, right? And it's really like you you can't get a you know fair. You know, I, I shouldn't say it's not a hundred percent, but it's you know, I, I've experienced. Well, I it. hope that it's changing. I, I think it's slowly changing, but it, it needs I, a yeah, lot I mean, more. I, it, it is, but um, but there definitely is that um, you know, that kind of um, you know, discriminatory. I mean, I don't know how what else to call it. You know, yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, unfortunately. So basically, it, it was it was the holding my breath, white knuckling, you know, and and so forth. I went back. I, I lived in New York City for a while. I moved to Maine. Like I, I was, you know, the geographic cure. Like you know, whatever I can do. So I, I met this woman in Maine, and I was madly in love. And I thought, like, she's going to rescue me, you know. Um, right. And everyone in my life at that time, I was like about twenty three. Everyone believed that I I got sober before rehab and that was it. I'm happy. I'm clean. You know, like that's my life. So you know, of course, I, I led her to believe this lie. And like we were together for about a year when I started to have uh, you know these. Um, I mean, I, I I think craving is such a you know wrong word. Uh, we're not talking about ice cream. <laughs> you know, right? Um, it's like breathing. So I started, you know, my, my pain threshold was, you know, through the roof and I had to do something about it. You know, so I, I, I relapsed, I, I don't know how many times, but a bunch over the next few years. And I couldn't tell my, 
then girlfriend uh, who became my fiance and, and, and is now my wife because I was so ashamed. So, you know, I just, I hit it. And um, so we got married and we had, we had a baby uh, in 2005. When Ruby, our, our daughter was born, I thought like, I can't do this again. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm married. I was the breadwinner. Right. You know, I, it's like, you know, you can want something as much as you want to, but wanting doesn't make something happen. So like, I wanted to be okay with that heroin. I wanted to be sober. I want all the stuff. But what I knew from experience was when I was sober, I had a really hard time functioning. When I was on whatever, whatever kind of opioids there were at the time, I got promoted at work. I mean, I, you know, I built this successful career in, in private equity. You know, my wife was, was able to stay at home with our daughter. So Ruby was about a year old and I fell into this awful hole of depression. And it was just maddening because I knew what would pull me out of it, but I knew it was going to kill me, you know? Right. And, right. and so that kind of push pull was in my head for so long. And I ended up, I, I relapsed when I, I had had the surgery on, uh, a, I had a deviated septum and they gave me a bunch of Percocet. Um, and then after that I had this, like, I had never had a migraine before in my life. So like, I thought I had this very bad headache and it turned out that it was like so bad that I had to go to the hospital. Like there were like cracked vertebrae in my neck wow. from the pressure of this thing the surgery yeah no no from from the the subsequent migraine um right but you know my wife and i were sure it was because of the surgery but of course the surgeon was like no 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 that's crazy but uh you know the neurologist um you know these did all these scans and they were like this is really bad and they sent me home with uh, with percocet and i thought like this is totally legit i'm in physical pain you know what am i gonna do like i you know this is right i take it yeah so I took it and it, there were a few refills on it. You know, this is in like 2008, back when you could get refills on opioids. And I knew when the line was crossed, you know, like my head felt fine, mm-hmm. my, my neck, like I, I was physically okay. And, you know, there, there was that kind of thought of like the double standard, like just anger at the double standard. But at the same time, I knew like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at a fork in the road. Right. You, you know? could, you could feel like this is, this is not going to be good for me. It's like, I, I can sense it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 exactly. I knew that. So I finished the first, the first bottle of, uh, of Percocet. I call in the refill. It was like a Saturday and my wife went to the gym. Uh, the drugstore is like a little bit down the road. So Ruby and I, you know, we walked to the drugstore, we pick up the, the refill and we're on our way home. And I, you know, I just, I, I knew that this was not going to end well. And, and we get back home and, I brought her up to the bathroom with me and I opened the Percocet and I just like was looking at her and I, I flushed them. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was really, you know, for a minute it was like, wow, um, Superman, you know, like I felt like, right. you know, I'm good. But that, this. that, that in that moment, that, that's a, that's to understand that how hard that decision is in that moment. Yeah, it was. And I think that's, Kind of the thing is like, you know, we, there's so much false hope in, in the idea of, you know, sobriety is the answer. Drugs are the problems. Mm-hmm. Sobriety is going to solve all your problems. Everything's going to be great. And it's like, that's not actually true at all. Like that's when things get really right. hard, you know, but for five minutes I felt like, you know, everything's fine. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So my wife, by the time my wife came home, I was like, you know, thinking about how can I, you know, get into the plumbing, um, <laughs> you know, division. Right. How can I get uh, this? Especially yeah. when you're in all that pain. Yeah. So, um, so she, she came home and she knew that I was like so stressed out. I mean, I, I was, uh, like basically running a, a company at the time. And so she found a therapist for me 
Um, and I go see this therapist and I started working with him anyway, to make a long story short, a couple of months later, he, he put me on Wellbutrin and it was like, you know, a little bit of, of, of nothing much. And I had heard uh, more about, at that point, like a couple of months later, I learned that buprenorphine was a maintenance drug. So this is 2008, you know, long before the opioid crisis, uh, buprenorphine was even less available. Right. Um, yeah. So I found, uh, like a list of every buprenorphine doctor in the United States that was like searchable by zip code or something. So within a hundred and it was like a hundred or 200 miles of my house, there were six doctors. So I called all of them and one by one they go, um, we can't treat you. Um, you're not on drugs right now. If you were on drugs, you know, we would be able to do it. And you know, every conversation was like, like if I go out and score in order to meet with you, I'm not coming to the appointment. Like, why would I do that? It's yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. It's, it's so backwards. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so the last guy, like I got through the first five and then I got to the last guy and he said the same thing. And I was just like, listen, I'm going to die. And like, do you want my blood on your hands? Like I was very, um, you know, wow. uh, like, um, I mean, I, I'm not nasty about it, but just like, you put the truth out there. I mean, that, that, that is, that, that's the truth. It, it, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so he agreed to see me. Um, it turned out that his office was like 10 minutes from, from my office and he had an opening in like an hour. So I go there and I, and I meet with this guy and, you know, I, I had no dope in my system at the time, which is very different. You know, usually a buprenorphine induction, you're in some, you know, quasi state of withdrawal. So, so the fact that I was completely, you know, pure made a huge difference. He gave me two milligram, you know, pills, usually a dose, you know, eight milligrams ish is, is the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I took four milligrams in his office. Um, they dissolved under my tongue. And by the time I got outside, I made a few wrong turns on the way outside. So it wasn't like seconds later. Right, right, right. <laughs> but um, I, I, I felt it. And it was, it was the, the feeling that you get uh, when like withdrawal is setting in and you have a tiny little bit of heroin, you know, that kind of relief that's just like, this is not precisely what I need, but it's going to make it, you know, like it. To make it easier. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it's even. You know, I it's a it's a snorkel. I can breathe. Right. So, um, you know, so that that was, you know, I mean, to to say that it saved my life is like a, a really gross understatement because of of course it saved my life, but it it gave me my life. You know. Yeah. No, that um, makes sense. So, so you started taking this, and and tell me how that started to change your life. I mean, basically, you know, it's like immediately. Uh, it, it changed my life immediately, and. You know, from, I mean, I don't want to say like from fifth grade, but like I, I was, you know, from the moment I was aware of heroin and I was aware of my depression, it was like, oh, that's going to save me. That's going to save me. You know, so I, it wasn't like constant distraction, but it was like I was aware of it and I thought about it a lot. And then from when I started using it at 16, it was a full time job, whether I was on it or not, because either I was thinking about where am I going to get it? How am I going to hide it? How am I going to avoid it? You know, like it, it was it, right. It took up so much space in my head that I, there was really not much room for anything else. So getting a legal drug from a drugstore that a doctor prescribed, that there's no, you know, mugging and lying and crap around it. You know, like my life was like, it was like retiring, you know? Right. Yeah. And I I, want to get into that part of like the legalization of, of drugs and, and all that. But I, I, but before we go there, I want to just talk about how 
as you did this drug, how it worked for you to shift these these cravings or, or what it was like or how it yeah. took that away? Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, basically, you know, like, uh, again, the idea that craving is, you know, we're not talking about ice cream here. So it was like, right. you know, your, your foot chopped off, you're craving morphine, you know, you're, you're, you're drowning underwater, you're craving oxygen. So, um, you know, it's that kind of craving. And it just, it silenced it immediately. Buprenorphine, it's a partial agonist, so it's less, uh, it, it, it basically has kind of like a self-defeating, you know, element to it. I mean, if, if we know, you know, opioid is a category, so, you know, you've got the whole spectrum of stuff, and then there's buprenorphine all the way off to the side, it's, it's a partial. So it basically, it's like a warm blanket on your opiate receptors that tricks them into thinking they're opiated, which is right. exactly what I needed, <laughs> you know? And so... So I could I could focus. Would you say that because I, I haven't done I haven't done heroin and I haven't haven't done this, so I don't know the 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 physical sensation, and that's what I'm trying to understand okay. a little bit. So would would it say like you had a sense of like a, a freedom that came with that? Like yeah, yeah. you said, it was like a warm blanket. Yeah. It, it took away that drive to seek it and go out and get it and have you know, to. I think it's like. Um, you know, it, it, like if, if you, if you go back to the pain, you know, analogy, I mean, basically like all pain is in your mind, right? Like, you know, the idea that, right. oh, it's, yeah. it's mental, like, it's, you know, you're, you're not rubbing heroin on your knee, like an ice pack, <laughs> you know, like it's right. going to your brain, you know, so the, so the craving was like, I'm, I'm in pain. This is, you know, excruciating all it's all I can think about. What am I going to do about, it? you know, blah, blah, blah. So the buprenorphine staunches the wound, you know, right. Yeah. Um, it's triage. And so, you know, your foot gets chopped off, you're freaking out, and then somebody gives you morphine, buprenorphine, whatever it is that, you know, makes the pain stop, you're okay now. You know, right. that's what it is. It's all um, the same thing. I mean, you know, alcohol is a category. So it's like, you know, if you've had beer, you know what it feels like to drink whiskey. You know, right, it's, right. It's the same thing. So like Vicodin is the beer of, of heroin's, you know, vodka or whatever. You know, so so that was it. Like I I needed to, I needed something to to, to staunch the wound so I could, so I could heal. And, you know, that's really kind of the thing is that like, if sobriety is, I'm not taking drugs anymore, abstinence and recovery is healing the wounds that led you to drugs in the first place. You know, depression was my gateway to heroin. It wasn't pot and alcohol and whatever. Um, right. So to heal the wounds that led me to the drugs in the first place, I couldn't do that when my foot is, you know, on the side. Cut off and yeah. Who, who can do that? So once, you know, everything was bandaged up and everything was okay, you know, I'm, I'm able to focus on it. You know, I, I, I can breathe. I mean, like there's so many, you know, um, analogies that people use. It doesn't make my problems go away. You know, like if I, if I feel like I'm drowning in the middle of the ocean and I'm treading water, you know, all of that kind of business and, you know, I'm still in the middle of the ocean, but like now I'm in a boat. So like your life is completely different now, you know? Right. It's like you can breathe, you can do stuff, you can take action besides just yeah. going out to try and get the heroin. Yeah. And we can talk about the legality of all that and, and yeah. changing that in our culture. But yeah. you could actually function and, and start to work on your life. Yeah, it it mean, sounds like it gave you that. It, it, it did. I mean, I was singularly focused on not drowning until buprenorphine. Right. And so, you know, you, you, you're in the middle of the ocean and, and, a, and a you know, rowboat shows up. Your life is completely different now. You know, you're, you're, you're not sitting there going like, oh my God, a shark is going to bite my foot off. How much longer can I tread water for? The sun is giving me a sun, you know, like all of these problems that you have, like it's, just, you know, it, it, it all just stops immediately. 
So that was, that was it. But I was still, I, I, I hadn't told my wife, like nobody knew. Um, so I was on mm-hmm. buprenorphine for 10 years before anybody knew the truth. And that was uh, about like two ish, three years ago uh, when I started writing the book, you know, I mean, everything in my life had changed in such a dramatic way. Like I, I was able to experience joy and contentment, but, but everything felt so tenuous because I was still living this lie. You know, I mean, like my mom had called a couple of years ago to, to congratulate me on like 24 years of sobriety. That feels right. Bad, you know, right. So, you know, and there was so much misinformation about the opioid crisis and I, I lost so many friends over to, you know, I was just so much guilt. And I thought like, you know, my silence is really working against the changes that I want to see in the world. It's working against every relationship that I have. Like I've, I've got to just stop this. And I was terrified of, you know, telling my wife because I wasn't worried about like, you know, oh, heroin is going to be a problem again. Like I was, I was worried about the betrayal. I mean, I actively deceived her for a very long time. We were married for 18 or we, we, we'd been together for 18 years when I told her, um, the truth. And she was wow. so gracious about it. So compassionate and understanding. That's amazing. Yeah. But it's like, it's, it sounds like this whole journey of growth. One of the things is you're telling your story that I'm seeing and I notice is your drive to find a solution, to keep working on it. And I, I know it's driven by pain, but it's also shows something about who you are. And it's just like this story to keep going and making it better and, and to, and trusting your own gut. Yeah. I mean, trusting yourself. Yeah. And th- and that's really huge. I mean, like so many people, you know, since I started talking about this out in the world, I mean, you know, my, my friends, everybody knew that like I had a problem with heroin, you know, when I way back when, um, and I would say things like, you know, it's pure evil and, and you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, somebody, I mean, a, a bunch of people asked me at various points in time, you know, like, well, you must have really had a death wish because that stuff is, you know, whatever. And of, and of course, I said yes at the time. But I knew that, like, no, I had a life wish if I wanted to yeah. die. Like that, you know, and I was so aware at times when I was like, you know, I, like thinking about killing myself um, later in life before the buprenorphine that, you know, the stigma of addiction is so bad that, like, um, you know, my daughter was like one. And I, and I was, I was seriously contemplating suicide. And I thought like, you know, they'll get sympathy. Like Andrea and Ruby was, people will sympathize if I'm, if, if I, if I commit suicide, if I, if I kill myself. Right. But if I, if I, if I go on and I, um, you know, I'm self-medicating with heroin to avoid killing myself. Nobody's going to like that. I know. Um, it's, it's so backwards. And I think your story, I mean, talking about this and talking about the mental health issues, talking about different ways of treating addiction is, is so important. And I'm, I'm happy that you decided to do that and to put it out there and, and to let other people see it. Yeah. Cause um, this is going to help somebody. I mean, I, I really hope so. I mean, you know, like at the, when I started um, talking about the stuff, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a very shy, quiet, awkward person. I don't like talking about myself you know, the absolute last thing that I needed was my wife and my mother and, and everybody in my life knowing all of this terrible stuff um, and being concerned and, you know, all like that. So, um, you know, it would have been <laughs> like, it, you know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't hold it in anymore. And I knew that I knew that I wasn't the exception. 
you know, right. but there's other people out there that can experience it. I mean, you know, like we know, you know, appearances notwithstanding, like there's no happy, well-adjusted 16 year old kid who wakes up one day and goes like, you know, I'm really in the mood to break a law. And if I could only get addicted to drugs, like that way I can break laws every day, you know, like that's just, yeah. Addiction <laughs> happens. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, if you're at a point in your life where you're, you know, sticking needles in your arm, like something's not right, <laughs> you know, uh, right. Addiction is not the problem. You know, addiction is definitely a problem, but like we're self-medicating Dr- drugs are a form of self-medication. And it's like, you know, I think we as a society get so, you know, wound up about drugs that we kind of like lose our minds in these conversations. Like, you know, there's anything else, any other form of, you know, coping mechanism, we recognize the coping mechanism. Right. But when drugs are involved, you know, like there's that, um, I, I've been using a TV show Hoarders, for example. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I'm, I'm aware of this show. So I'm making generalizations and hopefully I'm not wrong. But in the you know few episodes that I've seen, it's always like, oh, Joe is buying all this stuff because his wife died and he's filling this hole. And, you know, his problem isn't an inability to not buy shit at Walmart, you know. Um, right. His problem is his wife died and he's miserable. And everybody sees that. And it's so obvious from the minute the show starts. Um, you take that same guy, you stick heroin in his arm and it's like, oh, the heroin is causing all these problems. You know, his wife probably died for that reason. Like everything gets kind of right. turned on its ear. And of course there are healthier, better ways. You know, I mean, like I, I it's sometimes like it comes out wrong and I, and I don't mean it to like, I, I wish that I'd never tried this stuff. I wish I had a better outlet. I'm not telling anybody to go out and, you know, like get some heroin. It's going to solve your problems. Like right. the message, you know, but this is what happened. And it's so clear to me that if you're guzzling booze or whatever it is that, that you're doing, you know, something's not right. And until that is treated, it's white knuckling, it's holding your breath, it's whatever it is. It's like, you know, like abstinence, recovery doesn't start with abstinence automatically, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think this is what, what you're saying is where. Uh, we have to change how we talk about mental illness and we have to change how we talk about addiction. And we have to look at all the different alternatives to help people thrive. And there's no one right way to do it. Yeah. And I think that came out of um, people wanting to find a solution, but, but, you know, getting kind of lost in, in the, in the dogma. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, I think like, you know, we, we, we kind of, we're stuck to this idea that like there's a universal, you know, uh, modality and like, why, why would that be like with, there's nothing right. else that works like this. Why would this one thing, you know, conform to this very precise, totally backward set of, you know, rules that nothing else works with. Like, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense. And like, you know, I, we, we get so, you know, my parents were so, and, and rightfully so, uh, scared and angry about the heroin at the time. I wonder in these conversations, like if, if they would have said, you know, I was too ashamed to tell them why I was using it and they were too angry and scared to ask. But if they would have said, what are you doing this for? What's it doing for you? You know, right. Like things would have been very, very different. And we tend to get so like, you're an asshole for using drugs. You know, this is the problem and whatever it is like. So I go around for years after that saying like, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's evil. It's terrible, whatever. I'm invalidating my own issues when I do that. Yes. Because if it's pure evil, then it didn't do anything for me. So what am I doing it for? You know, um, right. but, but if we say like, um, 
you know, I mean, there's this um, commercial I saw uh, not too long ago for some rehab that it just, it made me so angry. It's this woman and she's saying, um, she started drinking when she was like 14 and it was like somebody turned on the lights for the first time. You know, it's it's what everybody says about everything that they do, right? So it makes perfect sense. So um, she stopped and, you know, whatever. And then at some point she said, you know, then my father died and I started drinking and I just couldn't stop. And, you know, I found this rehab and they told me, it's okay, you have an addiction. We're going to deal with it. It's not your fault. So they go through this whole thing and it's like, her fucking father died. That's the problem. She's really sad. <laughs> you know, she's not right. drinking because she's an alcoholic. She's drinking because she's grieving and, and she doesn't know what to do with it. You know, so like taking the booze away from her, I'm not saying let her keep drinking, but like, that's not the problem. You put right. her in a room and you say, lady, no more alcohol for you. That doesn't solve anything for her. How does she cope with the death of her father? How does she deal with this? How does she deal with the underlying depression that was going on before she started drinking when she was 14? Like, you know, just not drinking isn't going to solve your problem. Right. And in many ways, it's like addiction is is the symptom of, of all of these underlying yeah. hurts and pains and suffering. And as human beings, we want out of suffering. I mean, that's just, we're, we're driven yeah. to do that. We're, and yeah. And when we have immense suffering we'll find a way out sometimes we always you know do. i mean yeah we're we're yeah. hardwired for that and i think um you know that's that's definitely the thing like we we're going to find we're going to find it a way out yeah we, and i i think david you you sharing your story is changing the conversation and and i'm i'm so glad that wherever you found that courage <laughs> to to put it out there, you said you were like, I'm an introvert. What am I doing yeah, no, here on a podcast? And and in some ways, I'm the same way. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but I, I think it's great that you're putting it out there because you're changing the conversation by having it this way. And that there are so many options out there that people need to, to look at as, as potential to create the life that is meaningful to them, however that looks. And, and we're all unique and that's all different for everybody. It, it is. And there shouldn't, there shouldn't be a, um, you know, well, this is what you do and this is what works. I mean, you know, like I, I know that I can sound like a, a you know, walking buprenorphine commercial sometimes. Um, and I try to be sensitive to that because, you know, I know that it doesn't work for everybody and I get that, you know, you don't like it and that guy doesn't like it. Right. Guy, like, don't, then don't do it, you know, like find something else. But like at the end of the day, like we're putting drugs in our body because something is wrong. Like that's, that's the compulsion. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's why we do yeah. these things. I mean, and, and for any other condition, you know, you go in with any physical or, or psychological thing, we identify the source of pain and we treat it so you can heal. With addiction, we like explicitly tell you to ignore the source of pain because it's an excuse and you can't possibly heal. Like we're, I mean, it's exactly what you said. We're, we're, we're missing the symptoms. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, we're treating brain tumors as headaches. And that's, you know, that's, that's a massive problem. So I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm so happy for anybody who finds anything that that works for them, you know, and I think, yeah, for me, like, I just it was, it was held in for so long. And I was I spent so much of my life just like, second guessing everything I'm saying before I'm saying it and worried about what people think and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I think I just reached a point like a couple of years ago, where it was like, I couldn't live with myself, um, keeping all this inside. I felt so just awful about the state of my relationship with my wife that I was, you know, keeping all of this from her and, and, you know, my mom, my brother, and you know, all of my friends and relatives. And it just, it, it felt so wrong. And I thought like, you know, if, if this is useful to anybody, like that's great. And since that happened, I really, I just like, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I honestly don't care 
what people think anymore. Right. And it's an amazing feeling. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of freedom in that. And, and even talking with you, I, you know, I can sense that freedom and relief of not carrying that yeah. burden of shame that's projected uh, on anyone who's struggling with mental health or or addiction by culture and society and the self, because we all, you know, but to free ourselves from that and and to just be ourselves as human beings and and <laughs> figure it out. We'll walk through yeah. it together. Yeah. There's just a freedom there. It, yeah, there really is. Yeah. So I, I like to ask this question at the end. If, if someone's listening to this podcast or, you know, a person who's struggling or maybe a family member, what would be the one thing you'd want to tell them? What, what would you want to say to them? To someone who is struggling right now? Yeah, right now they're listening and they're struggling. I would, I would say to, <laughs> it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I think be honest, but know your audience. Be honest, but know your audience. I, I think that's a very that's a wise statement. I mean, that is wise. Yeah. yeah, you know. Be honest, but know your audience. Yeah, we have to if we have to find trustworthy others who we can share ourselves with, who can be compassionate and support us in in the changes that we need. Yeah, I mean, or or maybe you know, find. Uh, I mean, I think so many people have parents that are that don't understand. You know, we have this kind of the everything that's you know baked into our collective conscious. Um, you know, find somebody who. Where you can talk and there are people out there there are there absolutely are like like you yeah definitely so i'm accepted so <laughs> yeah. awesome thank you david how how can people find you give us a title of your book again and how can people find you okay um the book is called the weight of air you can find me um uh, my, my website is davidposes.com i'm uh david the kick on twitter i'm on facebook i'm not sure what i am on facebook but um uh, I'll I'll get all the links. I'll post them in in the show notes too. So just go to theaddictedmind.com and as usual all the all the links will be there and you can contact David if you, if you want to talk to him further or have any questions for him. Yeah. Please. David, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on thank to the Addicted Mind podcast. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the information about David Poses and his book at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 123. Once again, please think about sharing the podcast with a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in iTunes and uh, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. 
My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.